Hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today I've got an exciting episode with Dr. Connie Zweig. And today we talk about meeting the shadow on the spiritual path. And I want to introduce her, get to a couple of housekeeping details, and then just get started. So first, her bio. Dr. Connie Zweig is a retired therapist and co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow. Her award-winning book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends her work on the shadow into midlife and beyond and explores aging as a spiritual practice. It won the 2022 Gold COVR Award and the 2022 Gold Nautilus Award, the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for Inspirational Nonfiction. Her new book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening, is available now. Connie's been doing contemplative practice for more than 50 years. She's a wife, stepmother, and grandmother. After all these roles, she's practicing the shift from role to soul. And you can reach her at Connie Zweig, C-O-N-N-I-E-Z-W-E-I-G.com. Check her out. I have been loving her work for a long time, and I've been using her books, certainly on shadow. Uh, she speaks so beautifully on these uh, concepts. So thanks a lot, Connie, for coming onto the podcast, and thanks for your support here, and thanks for what you do contributing to the world. So also, be sure to share The Sacred Speaks. Check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. Also check it out on Instagram and share, like, do whatever you can to uh, uh, support the cause. Our sponsor is the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative clinic or wellness practice that my wife and I started many years ago. We've got a number of clinicians, all kinds of offerings, all kinds of groups, including some new offerings in men's work. So I want to note that really quickly, because the next episode on The Sacred Speaks is with Father Richard Rohr. It'll be the second time I interviewed the good Father Rohr, and the first time was episode 91. Speaking of which, the first time I interviewed Connie was episode 74, just for the record. Uh, and one of the things I'm doing on the podcast is moving into an exploration of the masculine. So I'll do about four or five episodes on the masculine, and then about four or five episodes on the feminine. You'll, uh, you'll get a lot of really cool people I'm lining up. So I'm excited about this next series because I'm diving into the book that I'm writing. I've just finished my outline, and now I've got some really solid direction for where I'm going. So hang on tight. It's going to be a, a good ride coming up. Uh, so also check out eslen.org, E-S-A-L-E-N.org. And Rodney Waters and I, who's also been on the podcast, will be leading a workshop coming up October 23rd through 27th, so pardon me if you're watching this after that time. Uh, the workshop is on Portals and Pathways, Ecstatic Experience, Music, and Jung's Red Book, and we dive deep. There's a lot of music performances. There are some alternate states that are induced through music and ecstatic experience, and we certainly uh, support that with a lot of content from our Jungian tradition and beyond. So come on out to Esalen if you're around. October 23rd through the 27th. Uh, also check out the Young Center at younghouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N.org. We just hosted Anthony Ray Hinton, who has a fantastic book called The Sun Does Shine, and that was an incredibly moving uh, depiction of one of the most horrendous experiences I can possibly imagine. Uh, also John Temple, this is kind of cool. He's doing Temenos Dream. Check him out at Temenos Dream. Dot com or check the project out. It is an app he's got. Uh, the the uh, Temenos Dream is T-E-M-E-N-O-S-D-R-E-A-M. And he's got an episode online with Laura London, uh, speaking with Laura. 
And um, his app is essentially all you need to have to document and engage your dreams. It, you speak into the app, it amplifies various symbols, and it also uses AI to produce an image. It's very powerful. Check it out. He's offering some specials right now, so go check him when you can. Uh, and also, of course, check out Modern Nations, modernnationsmusic.com. They are, they've produced the theme song for this podcast I've been using since it started, a song called Clouds that you can hang out until the end of the episode and hear the full selection. It's a beautiful song, and uh, I'm grateful for all the folks that contributed to that incredible work. So for now, I believe that's it. Be sure to like and share The Sacred Speaks. Thanks for joining. Look forward to an episode with Richard Rohr in a few weeks where we talk about his book, Quest for the Grail. It's a fantastic conversation, and I am, uh, if you saw from the first interview, totally taken with his work. So um, I'm looking forward to getting that out there. For now, enjoy Dr. Connie Zweig, and we'll leave it there. Connie Zweig, you and I have a bit of a history. Uh, I I was just sharing with you how much I love it when we pop up on each other's radar screens, and meeting this shadow on the spiritual path is your is your latest book. And as I was saying, it, it's it's really exciting to be reading this because I'm contemplating a lot of these ideas. It felt pretty serendipitous for you to uh, be releasing this now. I dove in hard. So I'm, I'm eager to explore this idea with you. And, uh, and thanks for being here today. Thank you. Yeah. So, so just for the benefit of any listener or viewer, would you introduce yourself a bit, give us the rundown and talk a little bit about just this book as an idea and its importance. And then I've got a list of questions to jump into. So we'll, we'll mine okay. the territory together. Okay, great. Good. So, um, I started meditation at age 19, very eager and naive, Um, actually not for any holy reason, but because I wanted to date a guy in Berkeley (laughs) who wouldn't go out with me unless I did TM. Sounds holy. Um, Yeah, 1968, (laughs) probably. So um, I really had a beautiful experience in the first few years with doing meditation. Uh, My mind quieted and my anger dissipated. It was really um, interesting and thrilling to me. And so I became a TM teacher. Hmm. And after a few years, I started to notice that there were changes going on in the organization where it had been quite open.
and unfolded. And then I wrote Romancing the Shadow, mm -hmm. which was um, sort of the method that I developed for um, working with our unconscious material in relationships. Why do we keep having the same fight over and over again? Why do we criticize each other? Why do we sabotage our intimacy, mm. um, addiction, depression, and anxiety, and so on? And then um, I wrote a book called The Holy Longing, which was this topic about spiritual yearning for transcendence, for the divine, uh, what we now call non-duality for higher states. And... Um, and then in my 60s, I wanted to look at um, the unconscious process around aging and retirement. And there was there was nothing, there was no book that looked at um, what are the shadows that we are carrying with us as we move into the later stage of life. Whether it's the inner ageist and the way that we've internalized ageism and then shame ourselves we're getting old um whether it's the doer that keeps us working because we're just so used to being the doer and identifying with that and so these these shadow issues keep us from the spiritual purpose of age which is to shift our identity from role from what we do to soul who we really are and then um my publisher said, why don't we come out with a revised edition of The Holy Longing, because so much has happened since then. And I had learned so much in the intervening decades about shadow and spirituality. And so Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path really explores um, what happens when we meet a part of ourselves that we're unaware of, that's a blind spot, and what happens when we're drawn to a charismatic teacher mm -hmm. who also has shadow issues? And when those those projections, those shadows meet in a discipleship or a devotional relationship and the community around it, what are the shadows of the group? And um, so I wanted to kind of apply depth psychology to understand those dynamics. And as I started researching it, I was just shocked at how many scandals there are now currently mm -hmm. going on, um, whether it's Christian or Jewish or Hindu Vedanta or Advaita or shamanism or Buddhism, whatever the denomination, the same dynamics are playing out in the psychology of the people. And, you know, so I wanted to give some guidance. There was no guidance for me when I left my community. And it was really painful and it was isolating. And I know that many people are going through that experience now, trying to decide whether to leave a teacher, whether to speak up in a group, um, and all of the loss that goes along with that separation. And so I wanted to give some guidance to people who are um, struggling with this dilemma. And that's what Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path is about. Awesome. And it is good. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about why 
as I was telling you when we first started chatting today, not only is it a fantastic read, but it's hitting me in a particular place right now, given some work that I'm doing for uh, my own intellectual kind of process so and spiritual process. So we'll get into that a little bit too, if we have the time. But I, but I want to dive into this a little bit and talk about this idea of holy longing and what you think um, that is. You know, what are people seeking? What's the nature of this? Let's dive in there. You know, saints and poets throughout time have spoken about the soul's yearning for the beloved, right? Yeah. There's a part of us that is restless for more, that whispers to us, there's gotta be more than this, more than the material world, more than the mind, more mm. than the body, more than romance. And some of us um, intuit this from a young age. And it creates a kind of um, restlessness in us. And some people imagine that the object of their longing is a romantic partner. And then they project that onto their partner in a relationship to be the perfect ideal. And some people imagine it, the object of our longing is home. And they wander and they search for the perfect home or in Islam, it's paradise. We imagine that there's an ideal that we call home. And many people imagine it as a level of consciousness. So we yearn for enlightenment or awakening or non-duality. And we project onto that all of these dreams and fantasies. And if that dream and projection lands on a human person, a man or woman who is a clergy person or a, a religious leader or a spiritual teacher, and that person is all too human, and he or she has a shadow, maybe authoritarian tendencies or narcissistic traits or sexual unfulfilled needs. And we are imagining that that person is a perfect parent or a complete divine human, then we are gonna go into shock when we see their fallibility, mm. when they act out in harmful ways um, and some people will feel betrayed and some people will actually experience PTSD. So whatever the denomination, the same psychological dynamics are taking place. And it was interesting to me to look for patterns and to try to understand, you know, the patterns of behavior across the different traditions and psychologically why this is happening. Mm -hmm. So you said all too human. And the 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 thing that I was thinking there, because you did such a great job in treating different theories, you know, whether it's psychoanalytic or Jungian or even Ken Wilber's process, you know, you're looking for these various lenses through which we can see and understand these energies that are dis uh, uh, communicated, you know, th uh, in, in between us and amongst us. And so often the all too humanness part of a leader is denied. It's not even, it, it's, it's just, uh, we, we want so much, and this is where I think it's powerful. We want so much for this divine like energy to be fulfilled in real time that we 
don't listen to the little uh, whispers in our <laughs> in our conscience. And you've got a ton of stories about this. Can you go into some of the stories where you see these communities that are um, people are participating in, and they're not really paying attention to the signs of some of this conflict happening in their leader? Yeah. So there's the whisper of the soul for that's longing for transcendence or higher consciousness. And then there are the whispers of the shadow that, right, I wanted to just differentiate that when you use that word, those in, those gut instincts or intuitions, um, when we are aware, oh, there's danger here, I don't want to look, mm -hmm. can't be true, right? So two different, two different levels of whisper here that we're talking about in terms of our internal messaging and our capacity for self-observation. And so if we're used to meditation, for example, in watching our minds and able to detect when there's a message of danger, a red flag, um, a risky situation, some people will experience that in the body as a gut reaction. Some people will experience it as a feeling of fear or anxiety. Some people will hear an internal message. I got to get out of here, right? And those three, those three dimensions are cues that a shadow character is coming forward into consciousness, mental, emotional, and physical cues, that there is a part of you bringing information to you that you may not want to see. And the first response typically to a shadow coming into awareness is denial. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know. And so when I interviewed people in the Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche community, Shambhala, uh, they would say, he's not alcoholic. He can't be alcoholic. He can't be that brilliant and that enlightened and be an alcoholic. And even if he is, I don't want to know because my life is here. I'm invested. This is who I am. Their identity is there. And so even when Trungpa died of alcoholism, people denied it. They could not allow that information to penetrate. And then, you know, he appointed an heir and that man and, and Trungpa also sexually assaulted women. Mm. And his heir continued that of having sex with students, even though he knew that he had HIV AIDS and he gave it to several people who died of AIDS. And when the third person who was the biological son of the original teacher took over, he also continued sexually assaulting people until he actually was forced out of the country and had to move. I think he went to Nepal. So three traditions here, I mean, three generations, intergenerational shadow material. And people now are really continuing to wrestle with the trauma of that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be meeting with people in the Shambhala community. The same thing, I just met with a group of people in the TM community who are now wrestling with new sex scandals that are coming out about Maharishi that hadn't come out before. And they're so traumatized 
because their picture of him was so idealized. He was a monk. He said he was a monk, so that can't be happening. He would never lie. He was a world teacher. You know, the knowledge was so precious. The, the technique is so helpful. So that can't be. And so if the denial lasts for decades and someone is so identified with, with being a devotee of that teacher and a member of the community, then it's very painful to break through the denial. We saw that happening, you know, there's a documentary of Rajneesh or Osho called Wild mm -hmm. Wild Country. It Great was show. on Netflix. I don't oh, yeah. know if it's, is it still on there? Yeah. Good show. So you can watch the process of what happened around the denial and the breakthroughs and the breakdown in Osho's community in that, in that film. And, you know, what I found is that there, there are a bunch of different things here. One thing is there are often cultural differences. So if the teacher comes from an Eastern mm. culture, and if it's celibate, a monastic culture, and if it's sexist, right, if it's patriarchal, and they come to the West, and, you know, there's more self-expression, there's more sexual freedom, um, and there's this clash of cultures. And so for a while, people try to adjust, you know, the members try to adjust to the teacher, the teacher's trying to adjust to the West, and sometimes it's not a good fit. And there's also psychological issues. So often the systems, the institutional um, rules and and habits that are established in the group collude with the abuse. Mm -hmm. So the teacher comes from a country where he's told he's a reincarnation of somebody special and therefore he's chosen and he comes here and he has no training in moral development and he has no training in emotional development, right? So, and he's not aware of his own shadow material or she is not aware of what is repressed, what is buried in his body mind, in his chakras, shadow material is stored in the chakras in the subtle body. So it erupts and then the community kind of explodes. So we've seen this in many, many Zen centers We've seen this um, in Tibetan Tibetan Buddhist um, communities. We've seen this in um, Jewish communities. We've seen it in Vedanta communities where the teacher has some kind of narcissistic sense that he's immune to consequences mm. and he's entitled to do what he wants. And whether that is assault women or sit on a golden throne or coerce people to give more and more money um, or demand more and more obedience. So whatever it is that's in the shadow of that student, that's meeting the shadow of that, I mean, that's in the shadow of the teacher, it's meeting the shadow in the student. Let's say the student is unaware that he is has unmet childhood needs 
for an ideal father, to receive love and approval from a father. And he starts to believe that he can get that from this teacher. And the dynamic is kind of set up that way. And he feels more and more connected to that teacher. So then if the teacher starts to rage, physically abuse people, um, that student is so invested that he can't see it. He can't believe it. And if he sees it and believes it, he can't speak up about it. He can't become a whistleblower because the risk of excommunication and the loss of that perfect father, the loss of belonging to this family, the loss of identity, you know, this is who I am, um, is just too frightening. And so it keeps people kind of stuck in place in this dynamic in the same way that, that alcoholic families operate. Mm -hmm where secrets are the glue that hold it together. Well, you're basically leading a class on cognitive dissonance and and also <laughs> painting a pretty concerning picture for the fragility of these spiritual communities, you know, that we we certainly desire, you know, that 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 little seed that's in every one of us of transcendence, the you know, that is then sought out and but but then reconciling the humanity of what we desire versus what's real and so modern cognitive psychologies come up with this idea of cognitive dissonance and this is what we're talking about that in order to resolve these um these uh, modes of tension that exist we just go privilege the one and deny the other and so say okay great and i'll just continue and now I've been in a community for community for 25 years and who can leave that? I mean, that the, that's right. Yeah, that's, it's, that's so it, right. It, or we choose the other side, right. which is like the cult literature yeah. that says this is all bad yeah. and you have to go back to conventional society <laughs> and, and shut down your longing because yes. it's bad. Right. And so what I'm trying to say, it's the subtitle of the book, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. How do we hold the, the beauty yeah. and the value of these transmissions from these perennial traditions and at the same time recognize that some people are dangerous? Some mm -hmm. teachers may be cognitively very well developed like Rajneesh in his genius books or Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in his genius books or Adi Da or Maharishi who was a genius and yet their moral line of development is really um low well my it's really yes my friend uh Jeff Kripal writes a lot about this uh, that the mystical does not equal the moral and how often that that's very confused because people people believe the mystical is equated with the moral and i i think speaking of psychedelics as we were earlier i know so many people who who idealize the mushroom for example they take mushrooms and they think it's gonna be, and i say to them you know the neo-nazis use mushrooms and you know the berserkers and the vikings were using mushrooms like the, these are mm -hmm. not substances that can 
only be one-sided and imagined to be divine. They, they're both, you know, and which is actually more divine, <laughs> oddly enough, than, uh, than the, the, the privileging just the good. Um, you know, as, as so right. many say, the demon and the angel are just differentiated by our attitude. You know, it reminds me of um, Marion Woodman, who was mm. a Jungian analyst friend of mine, and she used to talk about how people project the divine onto a muffin. <laughs> and the muffin, you know, if you are a foodie and yeah. you're trying to lose weight or you have an eating disorder and yeah. you hold that yeah. muffin, it looks like God. And you have the sense that if you take it into your body, mm. you're going to get the divine. It's like the, um, what's it called in the Catholic church? The, the, um, the Eucharist. The Eucharist, yeah. Right. So you're taking in the divine with that food or that mushroom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very tricky um, to begin to become aware of what we're projecting because a projection is a natural process. It's right. always happening. You and I are projecting right now. Totally. But it's unconscious. It's outside of our awareness in the shadow. So, you know, from my point of view, one of the ways we just we can recover from spiritual betrayal and trauma is to begin to reclaim the projections. Mm -hmm. What was it that we gave away to that teacher? Did we give away our own light, our own consciousness, our own essence? He's more enlightened than I am and I can't get there without him. And I'm just, uh, you know, ordinary. It's like the Christian teaching. I'm sinful and the priest is not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there is a splitting that's happening in that projection where I'm giving that away and then it goes into my own shadow. Right. Whatever I'm not owning in myself is getting buried into my unconscious. So when you're in part of a group part of what starts happening is a spiritual persona develops. And, and you start to notice everybody's thinking alike and everybody's facial expressions start to look alike <laughs> because you want people to, to join. And so you don't want to look unhappy. Mm. And so what happens is all that unhappiness, anger, grief is getting stuck into the shadows, getting buried, repressed. And same thing with thoughts you know people tell you to have positive thoughts what happens to the negative thoughts mm -hmm. the fear the doubt the critical thinking where does the critical thinking go if you're in this kind of discipleship same with the connection to the body and the body's wisdom you know if it's flesh versus spirit or sex is bad then the body that is going to carry the shame and is going to and it's going to be um its knowledge is going to be hidden from you hmm. so from my point of view we have to begin to reclaim all these lost parts of the self and then we can begin to imagine a new kind of spirituality we can have our agency to act on behalf of ourselves and others if there's an abusive situation. We can have our shadow awareness about ourselves. Hmm, moment of cognitive dissonance. What am I stuffing? 
right? Can I let that come up for a moment? Just for a moment, if it's too scary. Okay, got it. Can't can't go there now, you know. And you begin to learn about yourself and about the group dynamic and about the teacher. You begin to learn about it at a different level than the spiritual teachings. So, you know, my my the second half of the book is about recovery yeah. and how to do spiritual shadow work. The um, chapter five is filled with dozens of, of stories of the teachers who've acted out and um, the scandals and the um, allegations that are currently kind of um, in the zeitgeist. And so, you know, if people want to read about this and they're scared to, they can just go slowly and do what I'm describing. Watch their thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Take a break, take a breath, right? And monitor yourself as you go through the material because there is guidance later in the book for how to work it through. Yeah, pay attention to the inner world. I went to a, and forgive me, listener and viewer for saying this so many times, but I went to a funeral once of a person who had completed suicide, and it was in uh, a Christian kind of Bible church that I, I typically don't um, go into. And it was pretty interesting to listen to some of the rhetoric that was happening. The, the preacher was saying, never go within, go to the book go to the book. I mean, totally dismantling any kind of inward orientation. Uh, I found that so problematic. And we see it everywhere. This is a church with 30,000 people that tend to go, you know, kind of a radical reality, but very true. Don't trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that, that brings up this, this tension you said earlier, splitting. And I think that what we're talking about is that we're in a secularized culture that is still very spiritually yearning. And so how do, how do we differentiate or what did you discover about kind of looking at the dynamics between the religious life, the spiritual life, the secular life, and how to recognize how we do these uh, projections in these various containers? Well, you know, there's a real parallel. I didn't write about Trump in the book, mm -hmm. but there's a real parallel with the projection onto Trump mm -hmm. as the savior yeah. and the group think that's going on and the complete resistance to information. And so we can see these, some of these dynamics playing out right before our eyes now, if we start to understand them. Um, but I think there's a basic distrust of the inner world in our culture and a distrust of the mystical mm -hmm. and of, of profound spiritual experience, you know, in our culture that's been there for a long time. Maybe it's always been there, actually. It's a very extroverted thinking mm -hmm, type mm -hmm. culture in Jung's language. <laughs> um, and so, but this dynamic that I'm describing is not limited to this context. So part of the reason to do this book now was because of the Me Too movement, which really explored, you know, sexual um, harassment and assault in secular settings, mm. in the military, in um, education, in the workplace, in the political workplace, right? 
but they didn't, it didn't move. The conversation didn't move into the religious or spiritual arena. And so I wanted to look at some of those questions like consent, you know, which was a big topic during the Me Too conversation. So, and that was in the secular setting, you know, can a woman consent if her financial well-being is in the hands of a man? So can a woman consent if her spiritual well-being, she mm -hmm. believes, mm -hmm. is in the hands of a man? If the man says to her, you know, if you have sex with me, I'll raise your kundalini and you'll wake up. Mm -hmm. Or if he says, if you don't have sex with me, you'll go to hell and damnation. Or your family will have bad reincarnations for many lifetimes. Can she consent in that context? And so, you know, moving the what we've learned from the secular dynamics into the spiritual setting, I think is really important. And adding this dimension of the unconscious, which wasn't involved in the Me Too movement, right? But this dimension of what's going on unconsciously mm -hmm. in um, all of the people involved adds yet another dimension to it. So, and I know you're familiar with archetypes, mm -hmm. and that's yet another dimension. So yeah. if, if a clergy person or a spiritual leader gets caught in, a, in an archetypal possession, whether it's healer, shaman, um, knower, um, hero, rescuer, you know, whatever it is, and the student gets caught in um, a child archetype or a seeker, eager, the eager seeker or devotee archetype, um, obedient child, um, then you can see from that language how the shadows fit together, right? It's like a perfect marriage. It's a way that a lot of people actually couple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so that archetypal dimension is also playing out in the secular world, especially with Trump, it's so obvious now. But not, but it's not discussed, you know, it's really not understood. Um, and again, because there's this dismissal of the inner world. Yeah, well, there's, there's a, I mean, back to that thing I was saying about the church is that don't go within, don't, uh, don't understand that, don't look at it. it you know, I, I, of course, we look at this materialism, not just the financial materialism, but the philosophical position about what can be measured and observed exists and everything that cannot be measured and observed doesn't exist. And given that that's kind of one of our frameworks for consciousness, you know, that, that we're really just, uh, we're really underserving our potential as biological, psychological, social, spiritual beings, which that's why I love your, certainly the Jungian piece, but also your work is that it, it really revivifies this um, energy field that we've been studying for a long time, but a lot of people don't really attend to as much. I think most people that are watching or listening to this podcast do. So that's, that's pretty um, par for the course in this territory. Um, 
you you talked about the archetype and and one thing that you wrote about in the book that I thought was important is the difference between archetypal transference and parental transference. Could you speak about that for a little bit? Yeah. So if we're um, coming to a teacher with our childhood needs unmet, then we will tend to project an ideal parent that we never had onto the teacher. And so that's a personal psychology that we bring to that relationship. And it could be, um, I mean, we see that around Ama a lot, you know, people who are longing for the mother, the unconditional love of the mother, right? Um, but we see it in less obvious ways with other teachers too. People can project a mother onto a male teacher. Um, so if if the personal projection is about a parent and the teacher at the same time has a need unaware of to be that parent, to fulfill that role, to be adored, to be idealized in that way, then again, those two shadows are meeting and there's a fit, right? If there's an archetypal projection, it's not so much rooted in the personal psychology as in the holy longing. So we might project um, the savior, the divine human, right? The healer, um, the complete human being, the self-realized human being. And, you know, Jung um, discovered the archetypal projection in the dream of a client it's a case story about a Miss Miller. Yeah. I don't know if it was a pseudonym or not, but he said that he realized that she was turning him into a god. And when he saw that, he recognized that there was more to projection than personal psychology. That that is a reduction to think that everything is about that. That there's something larger um, at work here. And so... In the spiritual dimension, it's kind of obvious that we would project a God, right? We would imagine that this person is God-like. And so if it's, um, whether it's the fantasy that that's the only person who can be my intermediary to the divine, or that's the only person who's that enlightened on the planet, or that person's omniscient, whatever it is where that person is more compassionate than anyone else on the planet. So those are qualities of, you know, what we might call divine beyond personal that are a part that would be a part of an archetypal projection. Mm -hmm. And I know this is going to be difficult to do, but when you say divine, what is it that you mean? Well, you know, my definitions aren't really relevant. So I think that people, <laughs> right, people bring their own, like I got this a lot when I wrote The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, and everyone would say to me, what is soul? Another great book. So we project onto these words. Yeah. yeah. And part of what we imagine them to be is rooted in our own level of awareness, our own level of development. So someone who's in a very advanced level of development is going to give divine a different meaning than someone who's really in duality and imagining what it might be like. Mm -hmm. 
That's why, yeah. So, um, so, you know, as a psychologist, I can say it's something beyond ego. Mm -hmm. It's something that transcends the ego that we intuit is more, you know, is greater than we are. But I don't really want to speculate about the metaphysical reality of that, because that then starts getting into beliefs. And, you know, meeting the shadow on the spiritual path, I worked really hard to write it so that people of any belief system could feel a resonance. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be um, a part of any church or sangha or zendo or, you know, synagogue to get the book. It's not written that way. It's really written in, I hope it's written in a more universal language. I have two pathways that come up for me here that the first is a question about, well, there, there are examples I'm assuming you have of positive. That's a weird word to use more balanced, more harmonious communities that are spiritual communities. Um, so there's that, let's just go that path. Can you, can you explore what it is about a healthy community, a whole community that balances the light and the dark, as you say, do you have any at all that you think of? Well, you know, um, I tell stories in the book about various communities that have gone through crises and really come out of them, um, with different dynamics, different systems in place. So for mm -hmm. example, Kripalu Yoga Center, which is a well-known, um, I think it's Massachusetts. Um, the yogi who started that um, was married and then was sleeping with his some of his students. Mm -hmm. And when it came out, he denied it. And then another woman came out and then he finally admitted it. And so there was this upheaval in the community around what to do. Could they still believe him and respect him and follow him? You know, if he was telling a lie, cognitive dissonance. So um, over a period of years, they brought in um, Jungian analysts, consultants, therapists of all kinds. They really worked on reimagining the community. Mm -hmm. Um, he wrote about his new understanding of psychology and how he didn't understand that the guru-disciple relationship that he learned in India didn't really work here. Um, and they tried to kind of revamp everything with him still there. It didn't work for some reason, and ultimately he left. And they have kind of redesigned the community now to be so that it's not guru centered. Mm -hmm. um, there's another story about the LA Zen center where the Roshi, I think he was like a hundred years old and he was having sex with all these women. And when it came out and everything fell apart, um, it really looked like everything was going to close down. And a female Roshi came in and she um, actually taught shadow work. She designed the practice so that instead of meditating facing the wall, people faced each other. Mm. She taught communication skills. She changed the masculine feminine dynamics. 
um, she's retired, but she left this in a completely different um, institutional design. I mean, she just did a beautiful, she left a beautiful gift there. So those are two of the stories in the yeah. book about how some communities have been able to recover and reimagine their systems so that they don't collude with the abuse. And, you know, I call that communal shadow work. So it's really, it's a little bit different from individual shadow work that we're doing privately within. Hmm. Well, I think this is where you and I really aligned around depth psychology providing such a a potential, a, a very healthy, potentially healthy lens through which to see and reflect on um, the reality of, you know, what we know we carry and what we don't want to know we carry, and and just owning that. And you referenced in the book at one point uh, Robert J. Lifton, whom I I did a lot of reading in his work because I was looking at fame and the psychology of fame and the projections onto celebrity and or some of my earlier work. And I read a lot of his work on cults. It's just magnificent. And to, yeah. like these, just to say, you know, viewer and listener, these are powerful, you know, very potent communities that are large. And Amshin Rikio was one of them in the, they released Sarin Gas. He wrote about um, destroying the world to save it was his wonderful book. And he, I mean, they had like a billion dollar arms uh, dealings in this cult and they started as an acupuncture and yoga community that turned into this yes. multinational yeah. arms dealer. There's a, a series now, I forget if it's on Netflix or Apple called how to become a cult leader. <laughs> and he's, and they, they have footage of him. Oh, he's in there. Oh yeah. I'll he's, check that he's out. Yeah. So, so let, let, I'd like to broaden out and kind of dip into what we were talking about in the beginning when you and I were just chatting um looking at the modern psychedelic community i think the work that you do i would say like flag in the sand has to be considered within these psychedelic communities because they are within the communities there are these compounds that are being used that are so powerful and extremely seductive to the spiritual yearning and you know holy longing what what do you see in this community and what let's just kind of dive so into that I had um, both my own direct experience of this and then also a client who struggled with this. Mm -hmm. So my journalism career um, in the 80s, my writing mentor was Marilyn Ferguson, who wrote a book called The Aquarian Conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And it was this brilliant book that kind of launched New Age thinking mm -hmm. at the time. And um, Marilyn was my mentor and became really like my best friend. We were together all of the time and highly creative and she was brilliant and compassionate. And um, she started doing MDMA and then she started doing ketamine. And then she started to, and she had actually written a book called The Brain Revolution so she knew a lot about neuroscience mm -hmm. and she started to believe her hallucinations mm -hmm. that people from other planets were talking to her and telling her what to do. She started to um, believe that she was chosen 
And so I, you know, psychology, we would call this ego inflation. Instead of her ego receding to, you know, in the context of the something larger consciousness, her ego began to get more and more grandiose. And she started to kind of identify with the savior archetype. And we would talk to her. We would try to talk her down. We never got through. Eventually, she was taking um, drugs every single day. And I was saying, and I organized an intervention. And um, she wouldn't stay at the retreat. And eventually, she died. So it was for me, um, you know, one of those turning point experiences where I recognized the fragility of the psyche. Um, she was such a genius, and yet she could be possessed mm-hmm. by, and she knew, she, I kept saying, you know, this is your brain. Your brain is telling you these things, not these entities. And she just more and more got more and more lost. So it was a very painful loss for me and a teaching moment. And years later, after I became a clinician, I um, a client came to me who was in an ayahuasca group. And she was telling me that the uh, that the shaman who was a Westerner running the group had all the women be naked all of the time, mm. made everybody do ayahuasca every weekend. They couldn't say no to it. And she was getting, um, she wanted to marry him. You know, she was really taken up with the whole thing. And she... Um, reached out to me but she wasn't open so again this is like a part of her knew there was danger and another part of her couldn't make a change and years later she reached back to me and you know kind of um sent me an email about how traumatized she was and that she was finally out of the group so but it took her years So, you know, I think that um, all of us are subject to persuasion and coercion. And that certainly Robert J. Lifton makes that clear in his work on Nazis. All of us are vulnerable to um, these shadow parts that are outside of our awareness, our longing, you know, for something greater. And all of this sets us up in a way for people who um, may have, you know, authoritarian tendencies or sociopathic tendencies, which I think is going on in some of the communities. Mm-hmm. Because these, the, some of these people have no empathy for how, for you know, how they're hurting people. There's just no empathy. So. It's wonderful and it's dangerous, yeah, right? It yeah. It's rich and meaningful and it's risky. And I think that if we can learn to cultivate shadow awareness, we have a better chance of really having a healthy and fulfilling spiritual life. 
Well, I really want to emphasize this. It's a it's a community that I've been exploring for a long time in the podcast and looking at psychedelics because I think ecstatic experience in the in the Greek you know way, like standing, getting beside yourself, you know, engaging in these maybe spiritual behaviors that um, essentially erode away the boundaries of the ego or the typical orienting force of our lives. And then we experience otherness, and that can be really powerful and profound for our ego. So in particular, it's the archetype of the prophet, as we were saying earlier, and we're seeing it all over the place where somebody has a, a singular experience and they, they do, they commune with other in whatever manifestation they appear. And there are messages that are given and they're uh, channeling and then they become that person without any training, without any shadow work, without any mentorship, without any collaboration and accountability. And that's certainly for all of the beauty and wonder that's happening in psychedelics and entheogens and this radical emergence of these powerful compounds in the popular culture. It, it is a word of caution. Uh, we, we need a word of caution. And I, I think your work really is the, um, needs to be positioned in any community as a necessary lens through which to see, uh, through which to see not only the experiences, but the community and the leadership in the community. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. So I've been issuing invitations to people who are interested in what we're talking about yeah. and would like to read my book in community. So I'm offering free online um, support groups to read oh. the book together and do spiritual shadow work together. <laughs> That's and great, Connie, fantastic. Yeah, they're leaderless peer support groups. And so if anybody is interested in that, you can send me an email ConnieZweig at gmail.com and put spiritual shadow work in the subject line and mm -hmm. be sure to give me your time zone. And they're all connected by region. So I will connect you with people in your time zone and you can go through this process together, whether you have had this experience or witnessed this experience wow. or just wonder about it, you can find community. That is marvelous. Thank you for providing that incredible service. Yeah. That's... And they're international, so it's all over the world. So wherever you're listening, just let me know if you're interested and send me your time zone. I'll post that too. I'll have that in uh, uh, in the show notes. Um, so looking at, we're coming up on our hour and I want to be sure that we tie up any threads or anything. Is there is there anything that we didn't get to that you really think is important for us to include in our in our conversation today? You know, John, it's a dance of darkness and light. And it's really important not to um, completely lose faith when you meet the shadow on the path. Mm -hmm. What I what you know, my message really is you're not off the path when you meet the shadow. <laughs> It's, you know, you're still on the path. It's a part of the journey. Think about the dark night of the soul mm -hmm. or the night sea journey or the via negativa. It's a part of the path. And if you get so discouraged and really, you know, lose faith in your practice, then um, 
you're losing your connection mm -hmm. to your spiritual potential. And so I'm not arguing for that. And at the same time, I'm saying, don't be naive and think that all you have to do is meditate and it will be only light and flowers, right? So meeting the shadow on the spiritual path is an integral part of life for um, those of us who do spiritual work. And in some ways, it's a profound initiation. I think if we can look at it as an initiatory process, like taking psychedelics, if we set it up as an initiation and we can frame it that mm -hmm. way, we can really move through it mm -hmm. and out the other side. I totally agree. And I do think that we are going to see a lot of beauty and expansion come out of what's happening in psychedelics we're going to see a lot of really difficult hard uh confusing and overwhelming experiences too that's right without without people doing their work and diligently creating the container and i think that's one thing i certainly don't think that you need to be a clinician to be in that space but i certainly think at least in the training of becoming a clinician you're consistently working on how you're creating the container and what kind of boundaries are in place. And I, I, I'm not yet convinced that people are clear yet in the psychedelic community about that. But I'm certainly thinking about it a lot and working hard on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm mining from your territory a lot, Connie. I'm, I'm and really... are you connected with MAPS? I am. Well, I just went to the conference and okay. I, I don't have any connections with... Uh, with the folks at MAPS, other than I've interviewed a lot of folks that are um, mining in this territory and writing in this territory. And I'm I'm totally curious and interested, at, not only from a clinical perspective, of course, we're learning with treatment-resistant depression, with OCD, eating disorders, addiction, so on and so forth, trauma, suicide, but also for a religious purpose, for people to because I actually think when it comes to talking about God and the divine, I, I think other Eastern traditions do a better job of this. I think anything that we can imagine that the divine is, is not the divine. I think it's so much weirder and wilder than we could possibly fathom that mm. uh, it is unconceptualizable. <laughs> uh -huh. And I, so I think that, that to me, that's a very... Um, hopefully a very healthy religious attitude that says this is inherently mysterious. I cannot contain it. I cannot speak for it. I can be mm -hmm. reverent and see how I can serve it. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. The ineffable. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. When you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. You know, that's yeah. uh, we yeah. again, uh, Western traditions don't have that. Okay. We could go on forever. Yeah, I know we got to right. finish. Um, I will post your information online. I am so grateful to read another one of your fantastic you. books. Your books Thank have been a close companion to my work. And, oh, uh, I'm so glad. Yeah, they really have, Connie. Thanks a lot for what you do. And I will and look forward you. to the next one. <laughs> and thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much, John, for having me. Yeah. We'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye. Oh